Welcome to tonight's Saturday Night Special, episode 156. I'm Daniel C, and I'm passionate about helping busy people make space in the whirlwind of life by shifting the way they live and work. And in a post-COVID world, that involves rethinking and redesigning our digital habits. I challenge you to invest in yourself, in others, and in our world by using your time, your talents, and your treasure to live out your calling. Having the ability to use technology well without letting it take over your life is so important, and one way to be inspired to do this is to listen to the Inspired Stewardship Podcast with my friend Scott Matterer. What's on the news and we're scrolling, like that changes the trajectory of our life as opposed to, let's say, a St. Ignatian rhythm where we start and end with silence and prayer. So those little habits play out into big habits, but they are they're designed in the in they're designed in the technologies themselves. And I won't go into that because that's a huge topic. Welcome and thank you for joining us on the Inspired Stewardship Podcast. If you truly desire to become the person who God wants you to be, then you must learn to use your time, your talent, and your treasures for your true calling. In the Inspired Stewardship Podcast, you will learn to invest in yourself, invest in others, and develop your influence so that you can impact the world. In tonight's Saturday Night Special, I interview Daniel C., Daniel talks with you about how we can overdose on technology and what we can do about it. Daniel also shares with you his understanding of God and how it influences his view of productivity. I also asked Daniel to share with you how our productivity has this love-hate relationship with technology. One area that a lot of folks need some help with is around the area of productivity. Getting not just more things done, but actually getting the right things done can be really tough. I've got a course called Productivity for Your Passion that's designed to help you do this and then to hold you accountable and walk with you so that you can tailor productivity, not just to be getting more done, but actually getting the right things done. What's more, we take the approach of looking at your personality and how you actually look at things in the world and tailor the productivity system to your personality. Because the truth is, a lot of the systems that are out there are written really well for somebody with a particular personality type. But if you have a different approach to things, they just don't work. But there's tools and techniques and approaches that you can take that will work for anyone. And we help you do that in Productivity for Your Passion. Check it out over at inspiredstewardship.com slash launch. Daniel is the co-founder of Spacemakers, a productivity consulting group for busy leaders. His book, Spacemaker, How to Unplug, Unwind, and Think Clearly in the Digital Age, won the best personal development book in Australia in 2021 in the Australian Business Book Awards and was finalist for Best Technology Book and Best Cover Design. As a trainer, coach, and keynote speaker, Daniel has worked with CEOs, executives, and other senior professionals around the world. He's also a bivocational church pastor with a broad professional history, including physiotherapy, health management, project management, and Christian ministry. Daniel is the founder of a number of best-selling productivity courses like Email Ninja, List Assassin, Priority Samurai, and Spacemaker, 
with more than 15,000 students online and offline. He lives in Tasmania, Australia with his wife, Kylie, and three children, Naomi, Caleb, and Jethro. Living in community with another family, Daniel also keeps 14 purebred chickens who eat a lot of grain and lay way too few eggs. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Yeah, thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me here. So we talked a little bit about it in the intro, but what brought you to the point today where you're working on helping folks be more productive, helping people be more effective, and then specifically doing that without you know, ODing on technology. Yeah, look, it was a strange journey as often career journeys go. I used to be a physiotherapist, actually, a physical therapist in the States, I think you call it. And yeah, and I, I enjoyed uh, it. Other and people call them torture people. Yeah. That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> yeah, well, very similar to a productivity consultant, really. And I enjoyed it, but I, and I always felt like I was, I don't know, working from my left hand. It just didn't quite fit me. And then I ended up in a physiotherapy management role and then went into health management. And again, I was like a pig in mud and it just fit my strengths and my skills. And I found that there was a number of areas where I was uh, thriving, but people around me were struggling and I couldn't work out why some of the things that I found a little intuitive were so not intuitive in terms of structure and organizing and thinking about your goals and making sure your decisions were aligned with your longer term values and that type of stuff. But one area I really struggled with was email. And I realized that I'd spent what four years as an undergraduate physio and then many years studying anatomy and kinesiology and all these wonderful subjects. But when it came to my actual job as a manager of a physio service, I probably spent a quarter of my time reading and responding to this thing called email. And no one had given me any training whatsoever on how to manage high volume email. And so I went for a, into a deep dive of the research and started to discover, wow, you can actually learn a tool, let's say like email or to-do lists or prioritization and actually really transform the way in which you experience your work. It can transform your ability to achieve your goals or your calling. And those skills, that, that kind of shifting the way you live and work can transform you. And that took me on a journey where I fell in love with the idea of improving people's productivity and improving my productivity. And that eventually became a consulting. So a lot of times when people think about getting better with getting more done, getting productivity better, getting better at time management, however you want to phrase it. One of the questions they always have is, so what app do you use or what tool do you use to do X, Y, Z? Where do you fall in that idea of how does the tool fit into it versus other things about getting more productive? Yeah. So I never, I almost never start with the tool because it's always about the habits for me. And the habits need to be aligned with your broader values and goals and kingdom calling. So in terms of habits, that again came out of that. You said I was a torturer. It's probably true. But uh, physiotherapy essentially is about uh, motivating physical habit change in people. And what I quickly realized is I could do the right treatment and I could give people the right treatment plan, the right exercises. But most of the time, people, if I'm really honest, they just didn't do it. And the gap is the habits that people create in their lives. And like James Clear says, we are almost the sum of our habits. We're the sum of 100,000 habits. And that's the truth. That's true for uh, people who follow Jesus. It's true for people who are working in the world. It's true for a whole productive 
nature of how we live and work. And so if we can, yeah, it's not about the app. The app is the last, it's at the end of the assembly line uh, and it's the habits through which you use the app that will change uh, your worldview and the way in which you achieve stuff. So that, that brings us to, you mentioned faith in there a little bit. You're also a, a pastor and you do bivocational work around that. How does that interact? How does your, your faith on one end and your understanding of God, how does that influence how you approach the work you do as a productivity consultant? Yeah, I see it. I see it very similarly aligned. Actually, I know that being a church pastor and being a, a business owner is, it may seem distinct, but I, I see a great connection actually between what I do uh, in the church world and what I do everywhere else. And if I think about it, making space. So I'm a my business is called Space Makers, and I'm passionate. My why is to help busy people make space in the clutter of life, and it's about helping them think deeply and restfully reflect on their values and their why and to live well. And I see a real connection. Like I say, in the kingdom of God, there won't be email notifications and there's not going to be hurried, frantic work. You're not going to have infinity scrolling in God's kingdom. And when heaven comes on earth, we're not going to be exhausted. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And so look, it's obviously not religious language from a business perspective, but the heartbeat is to help people really just sit and be and to know who they are and to to become the people to live out the life that they're meant to live, not someone else's life, which is just so common in our world that people are living other people's scripts, other people's life, and they're not making space to think deeply about their own life and ex- exploring the inner life themselves. And therefore, they end up chasing their tail forever and not being and not being the person that that they're really called to be. What do you, what do you think about? Because you mentioned creating space to to think and to do other things. How do you approach those habits around mindfulness when it comes to productivity? Yeah, I love. I'm a big believer in silence and solitude. I remember. In the pre-interview, I think you said you were a gregarious introvert. Is that the word you used? <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, which I really like. That's an accurate description. Yeah. And it certainly resonated with that. I'm deeply introverted and yet I love community. So I have this kind of passion for communal living and also a passion for silence and solitude of, of withdrawing. But I've forgotten your question now. I think my answer was around silence and solitude and the need to, even if you're an extrovert, to to withdraw and to turn off your technology and to make space away from the busyness of the world and allow yourself to feel your own feelings and think the thoughts that you have and and obviously reflect on who God is if you are someone who sees the world in that way. Yeah, it was about creating that space to to be silent and listen and why that's important. So I think that you answered the question, even if you forgot it in the middle. It is very early in Australia right now. So (laughs) if I forget a question, it's simply because I'm waking up as we speak. (laughs) Yeah. It's the the interesting thing anytime you're interviewing people in other countries is you occasionally get to have the moment of, so what's tomorrow? Because it's already tomorrow (laughs) where you're talking to the persons. When you think about, and this is related to that topic, when you think about how we interact with technology and tools and the online world, 
and all of all of those things, especially as we're hopefully coming out of the pandemic and moving forward and that sort of thing. But we've had this period where we all were forced <laughs> to go online, whether you wanted to or not. How does that relationship that we have with technology and with the online world, how does that affect what it what we do when it comes to both productivity as well as that understanding who we are and what our relationships are and the why and that kind of thing as well? Yeah, look, and I'm, I think this is a really important concept for people to grasp. And it's one of the reasons I'm speaking on podcasts at the moment. I think the world has changed post-COVID. The technology is incredible. And I just... I shuddered to think of what life would have been like in lockdown without the ability to communicate through Zoom or other online mediums and, and to be able to work. I was able to continue to work and actually expand my business from home when I wasn't able to go out and talk to people. So I'm so thankful for the opportunities of digital tech. But at the same time, something has changed and it's been changing for a long time. I've been writing on this subject for seven years. But I think it's become really prevalent, this sense of digital overload, this feeling that we're on our tools too much, that we're uncomfortable with how our relationship with the online world is starting to change us and is starting to impact our ability to switch off and to be silent and to simply enjoy quiet or to be present with our family or friends, that sense of being anxious or busy all the time and not necessarily feeling at peace. Does that make sense? And I'm seeing that more and more with the burnout and the great resignation and the tiredness post-Zoom. It's not just change fatigue. I think it's, it's technology fatigue that's contributing to it. And so in terms of the relationship between technology and productivity, that's the key factor here. When I've looked at the research and looked at my coaching, imagine an upside-down graph. So it's like an upside-down U, which is a pretty typical graph, but this is what it looks like to map out productivity against digital technology. So you need to use tech to get productive. That's obvious. Okay. And so the, a bit of tech will make you more productive and imagine the graph going up. But then you reach this plateau where more technology doesn't make you more productive. You actually start to plateau and you experience this sense of limited returns. And I call that pr the productive middle. It's like the technology is the sweet spot. And if you keep using it, you're not going to get more gains. Uh, but then what happens if you keep using it, if you spend more time online, if you reach for your phone first thing in the morning and last thing at night, you know, if you're habitually checking email on the toilet or do you know what I mean? Or checking email all through the weekend. And if you're doing all those scrolling behaviors, what happens is we hit digital overuse and you slide down the opposite side of the curve where more productivity, more technology is making you less happy, uh, less healthy and less productive. And all of that is in the research. And this is where our whole culture has gone. The all of culture has slid into this right side where I think the new normal now is digital overuse. And actually, ironically, the way to become more productive is to learn to unplug and make space as a habit. It's a different set of productivity skills. You need the skills of learning tech still, because most of us still need to improve our tech skills to improve productivity. But we also need another set. We need the space-making habits. And that's really what the book is about, how to unplug, unwind, and rest on a regular habitual basis to, to actually be more productive as well as a human. So it's interesting because, again, I think it comes back to that idea of when, you know, if you use technology to leverage what you're doing and get more efficient and 
efficiency is defined as being able to do something quickly. And so it's, mm-hmm. you get on the zoom meeting and it doesn't take you four and a half minutes to figure out where the mute button is and that kind of thing. You've learned to use the tool email. You've learned to use the tool in some way and manage it and do it. But that's that left-hand side of the U that's the getting better piece. Mm. Part of it too, is then, isn't it mentally and emotionally? What do you do as you start creating more getting better at it means you have more time in a way, not really, but you freed up time that used to be used other ways. And it's almost a choice of what do you do with that time that you freed up? Do you throw more stuff and more technology or do you create some space and some quiet and some reflection and these sorts of things? Yeah, look, absolutely. I remember reading, uh, I can't remember the person's name, but there was a politician in America in the 1950s or 60s that, that predicted that by the time we hit in the 1990s, technology would get us to the point where the biggest problem that society would have is what to do with our spare time. And uh, that actually hasn't <laughs> well, happened, Well, that's has it? Uh, kind of not worked out exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so it's this weird thing where the more effective and more efficient you become, the higher your expectations for life are, firstly. And, and, and there's this sense where it hasn't worked. You can endlessly fill your cup with stuff and you'll never, ever finish it. I think we're, we're in a new normal. I, when I'm training people, I get a cup of water and I pour water into it and I fill it and I let it keep spilling, which the OCD people in the room hate it. And the water flows out of the cup, onto the table, onto the floor. And it's my way of saying, I actually think this is the way we live and work now, that you'll never have enough time to look at everything you want to on Netflix. You'll never have enough time to get through your emails and achieve all these things that almost feel like you have to do. And so the question comes down to what really matters? What am I going to put in my cup? And what am I going to say no to? And the problem is we are absolutely filling our cup with digital tech and we are pushing out the things that give us life historically, spiritually, research-wise, like just being with people or being in silence and praying, looking at a tree and enjoying just observing the wonder of that simple experience. Bushwalking. Uh, playing for a music. walk without earbuds on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Walking and exercising without music. Yeah. Eating a meal without needing a phone to have the conversation. Like we, we've just, we, we are becoming what Elon Musk calls, he says we're already cyborgs. And I think it's true. We are becoming cyborgs. And there's some wonderful things about being a cyborg. You can get a lot sure. done. And, but there are times where we're not meant to be cyborgs. And there are aspects of humanity that are being lost by being online all the time. And that's what I want to reclaim. So, yeah, it's not about being efficient. It's actually about saying no and setting limits to live the full life that I believe we're given as as people by God. Let me ask you a question. We've talked a lot about productivity as we're getting to this point, but I realize we I never actually asked you for your definition of the word. And I'm a big, firm believer in people should define their language when they use it, because a lot of times we'll say something and we mean different things. How do you define the word productivity? I must admit, I don't really have a definition. It's it's certainly not getting more done. That's that's like playing Tetris. It'll never happen. You never finish. It's probably getting the right things done. It's and by that I choose. I almost think that the tools that I teach from a productivity perspective and the systems I give people for email and lists and all that stuff, it's actually not about doing those things. It's actually giving you a system so that you've got the confidence to say no 
and put them in their place and therefore have the space to invest in the other things that are really important. So it's knowing who you are, what your longer-term goals are, the calling that you have is, and having enough of a system and enough processes so that you've got the confidence to, to pursue those things and let everything else go. Hmm. I don't know if that connects. What, what, how would you define it? I, I define it as getting the right things done. That's, that's simple. I, I should have just said that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I think the reason why for me, that's the definition and you said it beautifully. It's, I think oftentimes we think of productivity as getting more things done, but if you're getting mm. the wrong things done, who really cares if you're getting more of them done, you can get yeah. more done, but if it's the wrong thing, then Definitely. it's not important at the end of the day, it doesn't move you where you want to go. And I've changed I'm now in my mid forties. And actually I think the way I understood life has changed in the last 10 years as well, even through the grief of losing a great friend and some of the things that often happens. And I've done a lot of reading about how productivity and mindset changes throughout the ages. And we're all going to die and we all, we're all going to have to let go of success. We're all going to have to let go of legacy. And some of the things that you pursue so heavily in your twenties and thirties and forties, I'm not saying that to be depressive, but uh, depressing, but I, I suppose getting the right things done for me. I'm almost at the stage where I care less about getting things done at all. And it's not that I'm not trying to achieve a lot. It's just, I don't know, the simple things are becoming more important to me. And some of the huge goal stuff is still important. And I still achieve a lot actually in my life, but I don't, it's almost like the definition of what it means to have meaning in your life changes at different seasons as well. And I think that's really beautiful that you can just simply know that you're enough for me, it's because I'm a child of God. I'm loved as I am, and I don't have to, I'm saved by grace. I, I don't have to achieve everything in order to have meaning. And that gives me the ability to do the things I really love. It's one of the things I've talked about on the podcast before is we often think of the word contentment and driven as opposites. You know, if you're content, you're not driven. If you're driven, you're not content. And I mm-hmm. contend that those are actually not the same thing. You can be content with everything you have and still have things that you want, have a drive towards something else. It's just the motivation for that drive is different. It's no longer driven because I want more stuff or I want more success or I want more. Your drive comes out of a sense of just being able to serve more people, help more people, connect to more people. That's sort of more relationship driven than it is transactionally driven, if that makes sense. Yeah. I haven't heard of that before, that particular paradigm, but I like it. I've written it down and I'll use it as my own. Thanks. Thank you. You're very welcome. (laughs) Yeah. Here's how that works. Okay. This is my rules for that. The first time you use it, you actually have to say that Scott said it. The second time you use it, you say some guy said it. The third time it's yours. So that's how that works. Okay. I'll do that. That sounds perfect to me. (laughs) So you talked earlier about that kind of upside down you and how when you get out of that leveling area, your productivity begins to go down with technology. Now, I firmly believe that, but there's probably someone that heard that and went, no, wait a minute, that's weird. What is that? Why do you think productivity suffers if you, quote, use too much tech? Yeah, okay. Look, I reckon people are feeling it. They may not know it in their head, but they're (laughs) feeling it. I think it's more the symptoms like I described. Why does your productivity suffer? Look, how many of us are in organizations where people are leading and they are super busy and they work their guts out, like they work 60, 70 hours a week? They're really, they're not necessarily bad at what they do, but 
they're a nightmare to be with. <laughs> the inner life is a nightmare and they just create chaos. I love the expression, you know, healed people heal people and hurt people. There's something about the health of your inner life that plays out into the health of your organizations. I did a lot of strategic planning with teams and I realized that actually most of the time it's not the strategy that stuffs up our culture. It's actually the interpersonal relationships and the inner life and spirituality of the leader. And, and basically how healthy you are is what you perpetuate. And the strategy seems to follow that. Obviously, you need the ability to execute and things like that. So I'm going in circles. But what I'm saying is if we are constantly online and we never have space to, to reflect, to be, to sleep enough, sleep deprivation leads to a loss of productivity. If we don't have time to have meaningful relationships or to simply just have that sense of peace in ourselves where we be before we do, that will play out. And it doesn't matter how busy you are and how many things you tick off, you'll tick off the wrong things and you'll create a culture which is actually not healthy. It's not productive and, and people will experience burnout and you'll experience a loss of self as well. So that's only one, one description of it, but it's about living an inside out life rather than outside in life. And technology tends to draw us into doing lots and losing our, I'd say losing our soul at its very worst. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now I'm going to steal that from you, the inside out versus outside in life. That'll be turnabout as fair play because I, like I like that Tried. turn of the phrase. <laughs> Let's try it. Good. So we'll trade. I think, and I think you're right. I think people feel that moment of being on 24 seven. Again, I think it happens in some ways more now than it did even two years ago. The pandemic, I think has created even more of that. Like some of the studies that are showing that seeing our own faces all the time on Zoom is causing brain difficulties and this sort of thing. What Mm. have you studied? You mentioned several times that you've studied some of it about the brain and the neurochemistry and neurobiology, neuroplasticity, all of these things that happen in terms of our brains. How are they affected by the way we're living in terms Mm -hmm. of the digital world? Yeah. And a really big way. In fact, uh, I once heard that uh, technology is not additive. It's not like a hammer and you grab it and you use it and then you put it down. It's actually organic in the sense of it actually changes you from the inside out to the point where you can't separate yourself from it, which is why I say you have a relationship with the online world. And we need to understand that. Look, let me give you an example, actually, a story from when I was a physiotherapist, because again, I think we need to understand neuroplasticity and the impact of, of tech on the brain. And so I was treating a patient once and they came in, they, wa- they were walking in like a crab. Okay. Well, let's call her Susan. And she walked in like a crab as in walked in sideways with her neck turned 30 degrees to one side. And I thought, wow, this is really unusual. And she'd had a whiplash injury a number of years ago and was put in a collar and she obviously had a lot of neck pain. But when I assessed her, she actually didn't have as much pain as I had expected years on. And I could turn her head both sides. So she could actually turn her head neutral. She just always had it 30 degrees to the right. And so I was really surprised. And so I got her to close her eyes and look in the mirror and I got her to turn her head both sides as far as she could. And I said, straighten your head so that you're looking forward. And she opened her eyes and her head was 30 degrees to the right. So her brain had changed. The map of was normal. Does that make sense? She mm-hmm. thought was straight, was no longer straight. And that was great. We just practiced lots and basically helped her brain realize what normal was. And she actually got a great outcome, but that's called neuroplasticity and the brain changes. 
and it we can used change. to think it was a static thing and formed it then it's yeah. done and it, it, <laughs> it's not at all and even in our 80s and 90s we can change our brain and our habits and behaviors change our mindset okay and so she would she had habitually walked like that for so long that her mind changed to think that was normal and we are doing that all the time with the digital world i think about piano okay i used to be able to play the piano and i used to be able to play really well like a concerto or something that i'd practiced for months and months and i used to play even without looking at music now, I can't do that anymore because my brain had learned to, to move in that way and then it stopped. But if I had practiced piano, let's say, two hours a day for the last 20 years, I would be incredible. I'm sure you. But <clears throat> guess what? We, on average in America, I think, are practicing the internet nine to 12 hours a day. And we don't think of it like internet practice, but we are practicing a particular set of skills and a particular tool nine to 12 hours a day. And that is having a tremendous impact on the way our brains are wired. It's actually like people's MRIs look different. Our brain looks different after nine hours of internet practice, months after month. And that changes the way we see the world. It changes the way our habits are. Uh, Rod Dreyer, who is a, a Catholic writer, he thinks that digital technology is the discipleship issue of our age and it shapes us and changes us in ways we cannot imagine. He says that to use technology is to participate in a cultural liturgy uh, and if we aren't mindful, it trains us to accept claims that aren't necessarily gospel. He's basically saying we're creating a liturgy in our lives. We're practicing way of living. So I'm going on, but I suppose what I'm saying is that uh, we shouldn't underestimate the impact of internet practice on our brain. And we just need to be able to unplug for long enough to assess the impact of our habits on our heart, our mind, our beliefs, our relationships. And really, a lot of the unplugging is about self-awareness. Well, and that's, I think that's an important thing on the self-awareness piece. For as, a, as an example, for people that are listening, we've talked several times about technology and your phone and all of that. If every time we've said your phone, you've been tempted to look to check your phone, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's because we, we, we always have that reflective pull towards our, our phone. If every time your phone vibrates you or beeps or bongs, whatever it is, you feel like, oh, I must check it immediately. It's You don't even think about it. You just grab it and reflexively check it. That's because you've programmed your brain. Yeah. And Facebook and email service providers and all of these people, they know how to program your brain to help have you reflectively do that. Yeah. My, fr look, my friend Mark Sayers, who's an amazing writer and author, he says about digital tech that actually a lot of, uh, and he's a pastor, so he's talking about discipleship and about how discipleship is about an apprenticeship to Jesus. And, and he says that so much of our of our life is shaped by the share, shareholders of Silicon Valley tech companies who determine the liturgy of our lives. So when we wake up first thing in the morning and we reach for our phone and we're suddenly looking at what's on the news and we're scrolling, like that, that changes the trajectory of our life as mm -hmm. opposed to, let's say, a St. Ignatian rhythm where we start and end with silence and prayer. So those little habits play out into big habits, but they are, they're, designed in the, they're designed in the technologies themselves. And I won't go into that because that's a huge topic, but I think it, it's worth noting that, again, there's value in disconnecting and separating ourselves from the tools long enough. Again, it's the St. Ignatius principle. If we test the lo loves and longings of our heart by by withdrawing from the things that we love, and then it allows us to see them for what they are. 
it's not about rejecting those things. Like it's not about rejecting technology. It's about creating a sense of interdependence from them where we're not mastered by them and where we can deeply understand the relationship we have with those tools so that we can enjoy them more. So let's talk about some of the practical tips, some of the things that maybe someone can put into action. If they're hearing us talk and hearing you talk about this and they're like, okay, yeah, I've, I'm on the other side of that. You, I'm, I've got too much tech and it's causing problems in my life. What are some of the practical tips that you can share that might help us disconnect or step back while still getting the benefits of technology? Because I, I, I don't hear you saying that we should burn all of our phones and go live in the desert in a commune. That's not where you're going, but how can we keep the benefits and yet still step away? Yeah. And of course, my assumption is that we're using tech and it's working for us most of the time, but we're overusing it. Yeah. Look, the beauty of the thing is firstly with neuroplasticity, you can always change. Okay. What you choose to do now will unwind whatever you've created. So there is a lot of hope. So it's certainly not a negative thing that neuroplasticity works in our favor. Very practically, I in my book, I talk about annual, weekly, and daily rhythms. And there's just a whole lot of practical stuff about unplugging. Why don't I just give you some simple tips? The daily ones are the easiest to reflect on. Again, I've talked about starting and ending the day with without tech. I think that's a tremendous start. You want to start small, like a small amount of space, a small amount of change can make a tremendous difference in your life. It's not like you need to have hours and hours of silence and solitude to start with. Yeah. If you can charge your phone outside of your bedroom and do it for your family as well, like most teenagers say they check their phone at night when their parents think they're not and they're losing sleep because of it. So yeah, everyone charge your phones outside of your bedroom. And rather than starting and ending the day with someone else's mind, start with your own mind. Allow yourself at the end of the day to reflect on your day, to think about the data from the day and how it impacts your life. Maybe, God forbid, talk to the person next to you and have some pillow talk rather than both playing Candy Crush or Instagram. Does that make sense? And and in the morning, I love love prayer. I love scripture. Even just sitting and thinking about your day and reflecting on the meetings that are coming up or the relationships or the conversations you have, all that stuff, it's gold and it frames you in such a better way than starting with the bad news that's happening in some faraway country. So that's one idea. Another idea I love is the digital free, a digital free dinner. It's another really simple tip. And for many of us, for some of us, you'll think, oh, that's really obvious. Like we eat together around a table and we don't have tech, but I'm amazed as I coach people around the world, particularly people in their 20s, it is like, it's like talking about going to the moon, the idea of sitting and eating around a table as a family nowadays. I remember coaching a, a group of high-level like leaders in a global company around their 20s, and I talked about the idea of what if you ate a meal once a day around a table without tech, and they were like, that sounds like the 1960s. I can't even imagine how I would start. For me, that sounds unusual, but the research in eating around a meal without tech is incredible. The research, there's lots of longitudinal research. It shows, let's say, 12-year-old girls who eat regularly with their parents. By the time they're 17, they're statistically far less likely to have a pregnancy, to be addicted to marijuana. They have better scores in high school and college. They have less debt as adults. They have better mental health outcomes. Young kids who eat regularly without a screen at the table have better numeracy and literacy skills. In fact, 
you'll learn to read and write more by sitting and talking around a table than playing all these apps that you are supposedly helping your reading and writing. The only other thing that makes you learn more as a child is reading with a parent, like a physical book. And so look, it's just gold. Yeah, eat together. And my favorite thing is if people don't know what to do or how to start, I love the question, what's your high-low buffalo? Just ask that question. What's the high from your day? What's the low from your day? And what's a buffalo, some strange or random idea or funny thing that's happened? And if you just ask your family what's their high-low buffalo, there's a whole evening gone and you can sit and enjoy each other. So my point is just tiny pockets of space, pick a simple habit that has research benefits and build on it. Do it for two months, add another one, and you'll eventually find that you have quite a different mindset and a different life. Obviously, pray and read scripture. There's a whole lot of other habits that are really valuable, but start simple and start small. So before I move on to a few questions that I like to ask all of my guests, is there anything else about the book or any of the work you do that you'd like to share with the listener? Not really. No. Again, I just encourage people to really just do one small thing. That is my passion to help start with small habit change. Uh, And if you can unplug just a little bit and then build on that, you'll see such a big difference. Yeah, really, that is my main message at the moment. So one of the questions I like to ask everybody, my my brand obviously is inspired stewardship. Stewardship is a word that I use a lot, and yet I've discovered it means different things to different people. And so just like I ask you to define productivity, yeah. let me ask you to define the word stewardship. What does that mean to you and what is its impact bet on your life? I'm going to throw a curveball here because I don't love the word, if okay. that's all right. No. And, uh, and it's only probably because of how I've seen it historically used, not the way you use it. From a biblical point of view, I think there aren't many examples of stewardship. In fact, like the one I think of in the New Testament is where Jesus talks about an unjust steward mm-hmm. in Luke 16. And But I do love it, actually. That, that idea is that there is a almost a criminal type guy who rips off his manager's money and he gives it away in order to build relationships with people mm-hmm. who he owes money to. And then at the end of the day, Jesus says that he is wise for being a criminal. It's a crazy parable. You should read it and try to wrestle with it. And what I love about I that idea on is, it. <laughs> yeah, I love that idea of stewardship because what he's saying, from my understanding, is we should desacralize money and desacralize the things of this world. And that, you know, it's like when he said, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and other things will be provided. So it's this sense where actually went into a broad understanding of what really matters. And it's not just about making money. It's about building community and it's about investing in spirituality. It's, it's, it's about investing in the broad capitals of your life that make life really valuable. So if that's what stewardship means, then I think, I think that's a fantastic idea. But if stewardship is give more money or, or save more so you can be rich, then I struggle with that. And that's how I've often seen it used. Okay. Sorry about that. I hope that's okay to say. No, there's no apology. I actually have talked on the fact that what stewardship means to most people is we're starting a building campaign. Please donate. Yeah, exactly. And that's how I've often seen it. And I'm like, yeah, that is really different than how I see it. That's not what the word means, but that's what, you know. So maybe that's why I I haven't used it as much because I tend to see that's how it's used generally. And that seems to be a a very different idea than compared to building a life that is whole and healthy and spirit-filled and wise and relational. And if that's what stewardship is, then I'm held out for that. Yeah. 
So let me ask you my favorite question. This is the one that I love to ask all the all of the guests. If I invented this magic machine and I was able to pluck you out of the chair where you sit today and transport you into the future 100 to 150 years, and through the magic of this machine, you were able to look back and see all of the impacts, all of the ripples, all of the relationships, all of the effects you've had, what impact do you hope you've left behind on the world? I love that question. It's funny because most people hate it. No, I'm a very legacy-driven person, and normally I would have known the answer to that at the drop of the hat. I'm, and I'll give you an honest answer here. Like it, it used to be to see a whole lot of micro churches or small churches all around Hobart, where I live, and to see people's lives transformed by eating and learning and serving and sharing together, which is a lot of the work I do in ministry. But I've actually resigned from my position as of this morning, and oh. and I'm actually. I had a coaching session last night, so it was a bit fresh about the legacy question, and and I actually feel like, I actually feel like I need to recalibrate that story and recalibrate where I'm heading and and what that might look like. And the answer is I don't know what it is anymore. And yeah, I, there's my honest answer. I don't know. It probably relates to actually helping people make space, and it relates to my book where the passion is at the moment, and seeing people really rethink who they are at a deep level and live from the inside out but i'm not sure and i need a few more months or maybe a year to really discern what that is again Mm. yeah i don't know if you've ever had a time where you felt like that larger calling has changed but oh yeah i feel like that right now for me yeah yeah i've i think we all have periods where we go from i know what the impact is i know what the legacy is to i have no idea And sometimes I think that's being open and honest with what God is putting on our hearts is it's scary and it's not easy, but it's also important. And at the end of the day, something will arise on the other side. You just don't know what it is yet, you know? Yeah. And it's, look, it's really, I'll be perfectly honest, this is a hard time in life where I feel in a transition, I feel quite confused and there's a lot of loss and grief and letting go of Absolutely. things that I dreamed of that seem to not have eventuated or that where it seems that actually my time has ended for this dream and it has to be given over to God in my language to 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 take it further without me and but it's also an exciting time because it's a time where there's lots of possibilities and I think it's okay I, I'm getting used to the idea of the life of for me, a life of an apprentice of Jesus is about dying and rising and it's about letting go and letting the new thing come. And I think that's we see that as part of our life as mature people. Over Absolutely. Yeah. So what's coming next for you as you kind of move down the path? The answer to this one may be a little hard for you too, given the recency of the transition, but what's on your roadmap? Yeah. Look, I know the things that I'm excited about now. I'm loving speaking on podcasts. We've just launched a a new training course, which is about digital wellness, and it's based on the book. It's about helping teams who feel burnt out and who are struggling with digital overuse to reflect on their relationship with tech individually and together and to create better habits. So I'm actually really passionate about that. I've been doing a lot of digital parenting stuff as well, helping parents reflect on how they shape the tech habits of their kids. So I don't know where it fits in the bigger scheme, but in terms of the small stuff, it's just a whole lot of fun to have conversations to help people shift their habits. 
and live a better life. And that's essentially what I'm passionate about at a deep level. You can find out more about Daniel on Facebook as Shift the Way You Work, or he's on LinkedIn as Daniel C, that's spelt S-I-H. Of course, you can find out more about his book and the work he's doing over on his website at spacemakers.com.au. Daniel, is there anything else you'd like to share with the listener? Yeah, look, I just want to really encourage you that there is a beautiful, amazing life full of richness and joy that is offline as well as online. And I'd really encourage you to balance the scorecard of your life and experience the wholeness that comes by unplugging regularly. Thanks so much for listening to the Inspired Stewardship Podcast. As a subscriber and listener, we challenge you to not just sit back and passively listen, but act on what you've heard and find a way to live your calling. If you enjoyed this episode, please do us a favor. Go over to inspiredstewardship.com slash iTunes rate, all one word, iTunes rate. It'll take you through how to leave a rating and review and how to make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so that you can get every episode as it comes out in your feed. Until next time, invest your time, your talent, and your treasures, develop your influence, and impact the world.